This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, author Damian Lewis on Josephine Baker, singer and spy. She turns up at these checkpoints and she just gets out of the train carriage, dripping in furs and jewellery, and everyone does a double take. My, my God, it's Josephine Baker. So the Gestapo agents don't stop her and ask for her papers or search her. They run to fetch their wives and their girlfriends. Come and see Josephine Baker. Come and get your photograph taken. It's that superstar effect. She wandered in her head and her heart. Where could a person like me flee to where we could possibly be free? So actually, she had no choice but to fight. You have to fight for freedom every day. And I think the conflict in Ukraine has has brought us alive to that again. Damian Lewis, welcome to Chatter. Thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, it's fabulous to be with you. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Uh, you are in the midst of a, a book launch. You, you are a prolific author. How many books have you done now? Truth be told, I've lost count. Um, and, and <laughs> That's it, a good it, problem it, to have. <laughs> and it depends if you count the ones which I've co-authored, uh-huh. because I do do some of that, and I've actually ghostwritten some books as well. So, Right. Well, I mean, it's, dozens would be the answer if you included them all. Yeah. Uh, very good. Well, we are here to talk about your latest book, Agent yeah. Josephine, American yeah. Beauty, French Hero, British Spy. Um, Josephine Baker, who is the protagonist of your book, um, she has fascinated me for a long time. I actually first encountered her story in the HBO movie about her life, uh-huh. which was on years ago, which was a really tremendous film. Um, she is arguably could be one of the most famous people of the 20th century, maybe latter 20th century, however we want to think about it. Um, our audience may not know everything about Josephine Baker, and this book is not a biography, and you make that very clear. It's a book about her very interesting role she played with the French Resistance in World War II and working with British intelligence. But just give us a little bit of a flavor for who she was, for those who might not know, and and kind of put her in context of the, the genuine megastar that she actually was when she was performing in France. So Josephine was born in St. Louis, uh, grew up in poverty, um, you know, stealing coal from rail cars with her gang, going to school barefoot, um, actually pretty much ran away from home um, and school in her very early teens. And and she'd realized or she'd hoped or she'd had a sense that she might earn a living by singing and dancing. She had this natural talent um, and she she made her way to Broadway in New York, knowing that was the only place where she could really, you know, break through. And she did get a place in a Broadway play and she was relatively successful in New York. But pretty quickly, she realized that because of the Jim Crow laws, because of segregation, she was never going to be able to thrive. And then she was given this offer um, by a an impresario, a theater uh, manager who was putting on a new show in Paris, about to launch a show called uh, The Review Negra. And... She said to Josephine, you know, I, I'm going to offer you the lead female role. And so Josephine had heard, you know, the rumors, the reports that in Europe, uh, one as a, as, a, as a black female you know, or a black person generally, one could be relatively free from prejudice. We're not saying it was completely non-existent, but relatively free. And so she took a heart in her hands, you know, boarded this liner, sailed for, for Paris and arrived in, in France and was you know, wonderfully surprised at how free things seemed, uh, you know, took on her starring, age 19, took on her starring role in in the, the Revue Negra. Hugely provocative show. Um, you know, it had rave reviews and it was, it was attacked by others, but very quickly she took Paris by storm. And then because the, the show went on tour, she took Europe by storm. So London, Berlin, you know, Vienna, all the major capitals. And uh, by her early 20s, Josephine was, you know, you could even argue the world's first truly global superstar. She was a superstar, almost like the world had never seen. You know, very quickly, she became the most photographed woman in the world, uh, earning a very significant amount of money. Uh, you know, she starts, she had the first role uh, as a black female leading, leading, having a lead role in a movie. So she really, all these firsts, and she became an icon. She became an icon for, you know, all those things that, that that Europe wanted and needed or felt it wanted and needed, this fantastic performer. And I guess, you know, what really set her apart was 
was this magic, the Josephine effect. She had this ability to reach out from the stage and touch her audience, making every single person in that audience believe she was singing and dancing just for him or her. And that was really the unique magic that she brought to the stage and which I think made her so successful. Yeah, and there's so many elements of her performance that I think now we recognize of that level of intimacy and and, and that kind of the spectacular nature of her dancing and performance that it seems like, you know, maybe people have been trying to imitate ever since her, that she really may have been one of the first people ever to, in this kind of a setting of a club, to really go out there to mingle in the audience. I mean, she was mesmerizing for her personality, but she she really built that into the act very deliberately. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. And, and many, many performers cite Josephine as their as their muse, as their inspiration. And, you know, so many of them mimic her, her moves and her dress. But but, you know, she she had her own club in Paris fairly quickly. She's she's Josephine. And she and she would do exactly that. She wouldn't just go and mingle with 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 her um, with with her clientele, with her with the crowd, but she would actually drag them up onto the dance floor. She would get the whole place rocking and she would do so with charm and humor and, and quirkiness and cheekiness and all these things that she brought naturally from within herself to her performance and her role. And bear in mind, you know, when she, she'd always been a lifelong lover of animals you know, always, you know, she, she got in trouble with a mum when she was just, you know, very young for adopting all the strays and, you know, rats and mice and whatever it might be and filling her be- the bedroom she shared with all her siblings with them and but she was always a lifelong lover of animals and uh, she built them into her show so she had you know chiquita the ch- cheetah she had um anacondas uh monkeys uh tamarind um uh she had a great dane called bonzo and all of that she built into her stage show so you know she was she was a real natural uh performer who knew how to play to that to that role that she projected. Yeah, and she and she famously would walk around the streets of Paris with Chiquita on a diamond leash, wouldn't she? And became known as the she was known for walking around with this this this, you know, predator cat on the streets of Paris. Yeah, yeah, she was. Limit. She was and you know kind of like that that was an image that kind of um I suppose came to came to be iconic and bodied Josephine as, as as people saw her. But bear in mind, there was the flip side to Josephine. You know, in her mm. in her in her chateau on the outskirts of Paris, you know, she would wander around the gardens in a batter felt cap and a pair of gardening trousers, you know, gathering snails for her her, her pet duck. She was also very down to earth privately. And bear in mind also, you know, because of her upbringing, which was tough as anything, she was mm. a street fighter. And she was yes. a fighter. She was tough as anything. And that comes through in the war. What comes through in the war was this was a um, woman who was unbreakable. Yeah. And really in a, a deep, profound sense of, of right and wrong and, and justice, which we'll, we'll get into when we get into her career in the war. Um, and you started your career, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, as a war correspondent, you've covered conflict. You've done a lot of books on the military, military history. How did you come to be interested in Josephine Baker as a subject? You know, um, yeah, I, I've written obviously uh, massively about war, and you know, war is very often um, driven by prejudice, whether that be, you know, enmity against the other, whether it be religious prejudice or or, or, or tribe against tribe or race against race. race. It so often is, and I've seen a very large amount of that, a great deal of that, and have experienced it very personally. Um, but you know, my my kind of first. What first piqued my interest about Josephine was I saw somewhere, it could have been social media, it could have, I can't remember all the media, somewhere I saw a snippet, a small report about Josephine being a spy during the war. And it just occurred to me, well, how could that be possible? Because spies mm. are, it's the grey man, the grey woman, the man who, well, no one notices the man who lurks in the shadows. It's impossible. Josephine was so instantly recognisable, so well known. She couldn't step off a train or step out of a motor car or go anywhere without people immediately knowing it was Josephine. So that being the case, how could you possibly ever be a spy? And I thought, well, that can't be true. And then I started digging a little bit and I found out it was true. But then I found out, and this is the thing, then I found out that no one knows or, you know, you talk to anyone about Josephine Baker, no one knows about her role in the second world. I thought, I thought well, why does nobody know? I mean, this is the most, this this is a mind-blowing story. Uh, you know, surely this this has to be told. So, you know, one starts to dig. And the more I dug into the story, the more I realised how how incredible her wartime role was. And also what an in, 
incredibly important role she played for the Allies. And I think this is a key point because, you know, in France, Josephine is, she is, she is so well known. She's, she's this celebrated, infinitely famous, iconic figure outside of France in Britain, in the States, she's much less well known. And, you know, what emerged from my research was that, and this is why, you know, this needs to change in my view, because she was a spy for us, not just for France. Mm -hmm. She was a spy for Britain and for America, for all of the allies in freedom's cause. And she did so much. And so, you know, we owe her a, a debt. So she, even before she becomes an, an agent for, you know, the allies, she was a target of Nazi propagandists and, and you know, she had performed in Germany and performed in Europe, but, but really um, seems to become kind of a vilified and a target for Goebbels and all of these, you know, the, the, these, in the Nazi regime. Talk a little bit about that and how they tried to paint and portray her. Yeah, so Josephine went first to Germany, kind of in the early thirties, you know, performing, and 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 she was, she was, you know, she took the country by storm, as she did in so many European countries, performing in Berlin, you know, sellout shows, but she returned there after Hitler's rise to power, and she was supposed to do a tour that lasted many months, and she survived for just three, and she was so vilified and so attacked and so so set upon by the brown shirts and the black shirts and, you know, the apologists for Hitler's Nazi credo that she just couldn't take it. And you can understand why. If you read the reports from the time, this was horrific. Um, and so she came to she came to Hitler's attention, and but she also became, she was made an enemy of the Nazi state by the Nazi state. So as you said, Joseph Goebbels, you know, the, the Nazi propaganda minister issued a pamphlet with Josephine on the front cover you know, as these are the people who epitomize all the Nazi regime stands again. This is the decadent West. This is the free. These are the freedoms which we all despise. And so long before the outbreak of the war, you know, imagine being Josephine, you know, she's fought, you know, all her life to be able to be who she was and to be the success she knew she could be and to find the freedom she hungered for. And she found it in, 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 in France and in Europe. I mean, she had a song composed for her, Je dis amour, I have two loves. You know, one of them was Paris, the other was her home country, America. So she's found all of that. And then suddenly, you know, with the rise of Nazism, she sees she sees the rise of the prospect of all of that being taken away. And, you know, and if it's taken away, you know, let's be frank about it. Nazi Germany wasn't just about conquering Western Europe. They were coming for America next. They were coming for South America. They were coming for the African continent. You know, this is world dominion under the nazi creed and she wandered in her in her head and her heart where could a person like me flee to where we could possibly be free so actually she had no choice but to fight and what she hungered for what she didn't what she didn't know in the run-up to the war was how she might do so so she has this powerful incentive, and and as you put it, I think very well, this this need. I mean, the Nazis are coming, and they've singled out her, but they've also clearly they're they're coming for this this homeland that has adopted her and embraced her. So the French get the idea to approach her and talk about making this incredibly famous, well known person a secret operative, yeah. which is a contradiction in the idea. So so talk yeah. about that that French approach yeah. to, to paper. Tell me about it. I mean, you know, that's what, <laughs> that's what drew me into the story. So, okay, take a step back. So, you know, France and Britain, the intelligence services of, of both nations working very closely in the run-up to the war, they know France will fall. This is an extraordinary thing. You know, the French and British intelligence services knew France would not stand against the onslaught. There were two reasons for that. One, the French mindset was defensive. It was the Maginot line. It was, you know, there was nothing in there which which accommodated the modern form of fast lightning blitzkrieg war that the Germans were perfecting. And the second reason was because the German propaganda, and I think we tend to forget this, was so good. And there was so much of it and it was so accomplished that the French people kind of didn't really believe they were coming, so that they just weren't prepared. Their heart wasn't in it. And what the Nazi propaganda was, look, why would we invade Western Europe? We're here to fight communism. We're going to move on the east. Of course we're not coming for you guys. And and it had, it had worked in France, certainly. So the French and British intelligence services knew France would fall, and they had warned their political taskmasters. They'd warned those in power who did not want to hear because the First World War 
was freshen people's memories, although it was several, you know, all those years ago, and the millions who had died, and no one could countenance another war against the old enemy. And so the intelligence services of both nations were woefully underfunded and woefully understaffed. And so the French response to that was to recruit, and it was the same in Britain as well, was to recruit what they called honourable correspondents. And these were freelance, voluntary DIY spies, people who would spy carry out espionage because of love of their country and love of freedom. And someone suggested Josephine. It was not a popular suggestion. This was within the Dizian Bureau, the French counter-espionage service. And it wasn't popular because, you know, at that time, this was the kind of spirit of the day and certainly of the intelligent world, intelligence world. You know, they believed that women did not make good agents. Uh, and more, more to the point, they feared, and I, I paraphrase, but, you know, this is what they said, you know, she would be like one of those narrow showbiz personalities who at the first that's a hint of danger will shatter like glass and so uh, an individual called captain jacques abte who worked on the on the german desk a long-standing um Dizian bureau agent was tasked to go and and speak to josephine he didn't want to go he says waste of time you know no point me going and eventually his boss colonel paul pilol another long-standing agent of the Dizian bureau said no please go just just give it a try. So he drove out there, absolutely, you know, completely without hope, and turned up at Josephine's chateau, saw, spied Josephine in the bushes, and she emerged wearing her battered felt gardening hat and just her gardening clothes and rusty tank, tin can full of snails, feet to her ducks. And he's, this is not what I was expecting. This is not Josephine in a ball gown glittering in jewels with her diamond-studded leashed, you know, uh, cheetah. This is... Yeah, I, he was he was kind of struck dumb. And she said, come into the chateau, and took him into the living room and they sat by the fire. And that's when Jacques Abte was treated to an up close and personal um, bout of the Josephine effect. I mean, imagine that he gets it right in his face. She yeah. she captivates him and he suddenly realizes why she's such an amazing superstar. And, you know, and, and, and he is, he, it's magnetic and he is captivated and he thinks in his head, my gosh, if we can, if we can um, harness that power to the world of espionage, she will be an unbeatable agent. There's no one she can't seduce and, and, and extract secrets from. And so, you know, obviously they have to make some small talk. You can't just say, hey, do you want to be a spy? But, you know, it, you've got to kind of try and sand the person out. But eventually he pops the question and says, look, you know, I, I guess you know I'm here to try and recruit you for the French intelligence services. And she says, and again, I paraphrase, but it's words to the effect, um, you know, France and Paris have made me all I am, and I will give this country and the cause my life. And so that's, and he says to her, then you're one of us, you're one of the brothers, you know, you, you've just joined. And, and he gives her her first mission. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, 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 it's such a counterintuitive idea. And as you, as you've, pointed out to get someone this famous to do the job but i love this idea that he he sees her essentially performing i mean being herself obviously yes. speaking you know from the heart about her devotion to france and, and her willingness to fight but at the same time this this adaptive personality that she has mm -hmm. that she can be the woman gathering the snails and sit there in the front of the fire and seduce you i mean these are qualities that are prized in any intelligence operative and it's just so fascinating that he, like the light bulb kind of goes off for him there but it's still a huge risk to take there isn't it i mean they must know going yeah. in this this could go spectacularly badly yeah of course they do and you know bear in mind um you know the first mission kind of almost does and almost doesn't uh, blow up in abte's face so you know he tasks josephine well he i mean the task comes from on high obviously but he gives it to her uh, he's her handler if you like and he says look you know London and, 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 and Paris are desperate to know what the intention of the Italians is should Nazi Germany declare war. Because obviously no one knew. I mean, obviously Mussolini was a fascist. So, you know, but but Italy, um, you know, had not declared its intention. So it was crucial that London and France knew. And so they said, Josephine, can you find out? And the reason that she had an special reason to be able to do that was because she toured Italy um, as part of her, you know, shows and, She'd, she'd gone down a storm, but more importantly, she'd actually befriended Mussolini 
odd friendship, but that's what she'd done. And so she was feted, you know, not just by the Italian people, but at the Italian embassies and high society. So she had a complete way of getting into the Italian embassy in uh, Paris. And that's why Jack Apte gives her this first mission, this test mission, I guess. And a week later, she she calls him up. And of course, she can't say anything, you know, revealing over the phone for obvious reasons. The Germans were listening to the French and vice versa. So she says, we need to meet. And so they meet in a, in, in central Paris with Josephine driving her Delange luxury uh, car upholstered in snakeskin, you know. And he gets in and, a, 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 and she starts to tell him what she's found out. But she's hyper excited. And and because she's so excited, she's like driving very badly and almost causes an accident. And a French policeman stops the car to arrest her, thinking she's a drunk driver. Then he realizes it's Josephine, so he lets her go with a caution. And, and Abte's thinking, well, on the one hand, she's delivered because she said, look, you know, not only does does Italy intend to join a, a Nazi Germany in the war as a, as a, the Axis, but they've already signed a, a deal to do so. This is done and dusted. So on the one hand, she's delivered spectacular. What she's got out of the Italian embassy attaché, the defence attaché, by seducing him either intellectually or physically or both. We don't know. Um, but on the other hand, he's thinking, can I ever control and um, you know shape and train this rookie agent to 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 harness that? that wonderful quality she has for the Allied cause. And he doesn't know. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It's, it, it, it's high risk, high reward. One thing I wonder, too, in particularly in, in, in that story as well, uh, about what might make her such an effective agent is that I mean, oftentimes, I mean, this is, I think it's human nature. When we're around spectacular people or famous people or very grand ones, we often, you know, we want to impress them. We want to ingratiate ourselves with them. I mean, the fact that people might want to tell Josephine Baker something about the intentions of Italy joining the Axis. I mean, that's a, that's a, it's a very sensitive piece of information. But I think when somebody believes that this is like, well, me telling someone really important about this, that it redounds to their credibility and benefit, does it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, if you read the kind of contemporary accounts about that mission, Josephine gets that information out of him by provoking him. Mm -hmm. I think probably by saying, don't you know, a man in your position, surely you must know this. You're not telling me, <laughs> Mario, that you don't know. It, it, you know, it's it's that kind of slightly flirtatious, provocative, you know, um, you know, challenging the man's ego in his position. You're absolutely right. Um, but it's interesting. You know, I had the manuscript read by um, a couple of friends of mine who were former intelligence people, both in the, in the, in the States and over here in the UK. And I, I just did that because I wanted their feedback. And a couple of them said to me, you know, the best agents are always those who have been forged in fire. They are always those individuals who've had at some stage in their life, a really tough time because they've learnt resilience. They've learnt to walk into the fire time after time and not be daunted. They've learnt what it means to confront their demons and their fears and get through that and come out the other side. Well, Josephine had that in in absolute spadefuls. You know, she she you could not you know you could not really imagine much of a much of a worse and tough upbringing as hers you know the race riots in st louis which she witnessed and all the rest of it so she had these multiple reasons why when you when you understand that her stardom was her cloak and her dagger she hid in plain sight she was herself and only herself and that's why you know she had she had um you know such an impact as an agent and when you couple that too um, you know her upbringing, and then her ability, and her experience, and her skill as a performer to be all things to all people when she had to be. Um, you know, you can understand why when they drew her into their circles. And this is this is one of the things that really kind of just blew me away about the story. So Jacques Capte recruits her. He's the he's the teacher. She's the pupil. Very quickly that relationship becomes upends, upended. And eventually she's off doing solo missions herself because he doesn't have the ability to travel because he just doesn't have the Josephine cover that she has. And he's left back in, in at their base, kind of, you know, p p filing the, the, the intelligence and, and doing the backroom stuff. So, yeah, she, she kind of, she really 
you could almost it, 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 she's almost made for this and the war is for josephine in my view and this is why i wanted to write the book actually is where she finds herself mm. you can be a superstar you can be a great world beating performer it doesn't mean you found yourself it doesn't mean you found your reason for living your cause your raison d'etre josephine found it in the war and you know and you write about how she wasn't only performing as as an intelligence agent. I mean, she was doing other tasks too. She took in refugees. She was a pilot and flew aid missions. Um, <clears throat> talk about some of the other ways you found that she dedicated herself to you know to service in the war and in other ways that she could. Yeah. So before Nazi Germany invaded um, France and took Paris, and obviously at which stage she had to flee, um, she. She she got her pilot's license before the war because she'd married a, a Jewish uh, French industrialist called Jean Lyon, and um, he had taught her to fly. In fact, he proposed to her in the air. He proposed marriage to her in the air. So she was, she, uh, you know, and, and unlike a, a lot of superstars, she didn't have a pilot fly her places. She flew herself to places. And so when war broke out, and you know there were, you know, long before Nazi Germany. Um, invaded Poland or Czechoslovakia before that, or the low countries, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of refugees and dispossessed and victims fleeing Nazi Germany because these were the people the Nazis were there to oppress. So the Jews, homosexuals, people of colour, uh, you know, left-wing, people with left-wing views, you know the score. Mm -hmm. And so Western Europe was already flooded with refugees long before... Um, you know, Nazi Germany actually invaded. And so Josephine not only flew missions in her little light aircraft to take aid to those fleeing refugees, which also, of course, doubled the spying missions because it was perfect cover for aerial reconnaissance, you know. But she also started working as a volunteer in the refugee centres in Paris. And, and you know, look, I mean, you know, yes, Josephine could take super anti but that wasn't the point. This was the point. So you have, you know, thousands of refugees gathered in Paris. Josephine turns up and they all go, oh, my gosh, it's Josephine Baker. And suddenly those traumatized old people and, and, and babies and young kids and mothers have a smile on their face. And she sings for them. Imagine that. I mean, that's extraordinary. That's the Josephine effect again. You know, it's just manifesting itself in, in, in another um, aspect of the war and one that you know she 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 absolutely ded dedicated herself to and then of course she was also going and performing for the troops along the Maginot line um you know to bolster the morale of French British and other nationalities manning the defenses who were getting you know during the phony war who were bored and homesick and Josephine came there and she was a breath of home she was their sweetheart for a for a night and it really I mean, that that reminded me too of you know you had you know in the US you had actors who joined up in the cause for you know boosting morale and you know famously when you know there was there were the, there was the club in Los Angeles I think where you know stars would dance with the troops I mean there really was a sense at this time it seems to me of you know of famous people using their celebrity and trying to channel it into you know the war effort uh, but I'm not aware of many people taking the level of personal risk that she did I mean had she been found out as an agent I don't know that her fame and celebrity would have saved her. No, not at all. No, no, no. If Josephine had been caught, she, in fact, she, you know, she almost was caught several times over. They came for her. So, in the summer of 1940, after she's fled Paris, she flees to the Dodone to her chateau, the Chateau des Melons, um, and she starts to, you know, she rustles together a makeshift resistance cell. It's like, you know, Jewish refugees, um, some former Dizian Bureau agents, some some former French military guys. But none of them know how to fight. None of them know what to do. No one even knows the meaning of resistance. No one even knows if the French people will resist. Then they hear General de Gaulle's call to arms, of course, you know, in in early summer 1940. And then Churchill very quickly thereafter in his schoolboy but workable French gives his call to arms and they think well how okay there are people who are going to fight you know for for freedom and the not just the freedom of France but the you know the freedom of the world and so Josephine starts to gather her troops and they get weapons and they hide them in the cellars of the, of, of the um, chateau and they put a wireless transmitter in the roof and they're starting to organize and then she gets denounced by someone in the local community presumably and uh, 
the Armistice Commission, which was the German body set up to police the armistice, the, the peace deal. Well, peace deal. It wasn't a peace deal. You know what I mean? Fr France's deal with Germany, um, you know, post the invasion. So the Armistice Commission turn up, and the Armistice Commission is peopled by, you know, German soldiers, but also Gestapo and SS, and this jack-booted colonel, you know, walks up the steps of the chateau, and his soldiers have surrounded it. And he, he strides into the library. And bear in mind, in the library just a few minutes before, before she got the warning they were coming, she was meeting two Dizian Bureau agents who had just turned up with a load of weapons, but more importantly, with a load of top-secret intelligence from Colonel Pelol, because the French intelligence service had gone underground and was still gathering intelligence. And with with the utter cool, the icy cool that uh, you know, it's it, it just it's extraordinary when you when when you read that 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 scene, that episode. The colonel comes in and it, obviously he expects to strike the fear of, well, the fear of what God or the devil into her. And quite the opposite. She basically says, what are you doing here in my chateau? And he's like, well, you've been denounced. And she says, you choose to believe the denouncers. And, and, and you know, he's, he's trying to get the upper hand and she outwits him at every stage. And eventually, <laughs> and he's thinking in his mind, well, if she was hiding weapons here and intelligence and resistance fighters, she wouldn't behave like this. She's provoking me. And eventually he says, well, do I even get a cup of coffee? And she says, we have no coffee. And do you know why? And I'm paraphrasing. She says, do you know why we have no coffee? Because you have invaded our country illegally. If you leave, we can probably get some coffee back. And then, yes, I would offer you a cup of coffee. I mean, <laughs> she is. She's unrepentant, rebellious, um, and icy cold towards him. And eventually... He leaves thinking, well, you know, I, I think we've, we've probably got it wrong. I mean, you know, she, that's not the way someone who was guilty would behave. There's no fear there. Um, that's just one example of when she is very close to getting unmasked. And if she had been unmasked, you know, it, we have to be honest with ourselves. Death is the best thing that could have happened to her because the Gestapo and the SS had appalling and terrible ways of treating people who they saw uh, you know as enemies of the Nazi state and they they made no uh, distinction between men and women in fact they would use a woman's feminineness against her in ways you, we can imagine to really torture their soul and many many female agents were treated in the most despicable appalling ways and eventually you know murdered horribly that's what Josephine would have faced and she knew it it also strikes me that as she's <clears throat> you know hearing that story of this you know his this imperious Nazi officer coming into her home and thinking he's going to you know absolutely have her quivering there is that performer again it is the woman who is able to walk into an audience of strangers and in that case seduce them and fill them with joy but then bring them under her spell and control them and get them up on a stage dancing with her and it's that same kind of um you know, instinct, that same kind of force that she just, she turned it the other way to repel this guy, but she was leading him, not the other way around. Absolutely. That's absolutely, she is, she's the boss. And, you know, um, it's, it's that combined with one other factor about Josephine, which really, you know, kind of grabbed me right at the start of, of researching the story and made me think we got to tell it because she, a lot of people have said to me, well, why didn't she just, you know, you know, Germany invades France. France falls. Paris is about to fall. Most Americans queue at the American embassy. They get a visa. They go home. To the their citizens of a neutral nation, they all go mostly go home. Not all, but most. Why didn't Josephine do the same? She was she 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 was a she was a superstar, an American superstar. Josephine could not, and it's because of what what we talked about earlier. She had seen personally what Nazi Germany was going to bring, what they stood for. And she could not turn away. She could not turn aside. It was, the, and it's that absolute belief in her cause being right and just, and that there was no other alternative. That you know, this was this was night and day, evil against good. That also gave her that strength to stand against that colonel and others at other times and say, "You are you are here illegally. You know, you get out of my chateau. You shouldn't even be in this country." And it's 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 an incredible thing that that at, at many stages throughout the war all those professional agents, long-standing agents who she served alongside, most of whom are male, most of whom are French or British, but then Americans too, 
many of them, if not all of them, at some stage lose heart. Because let's be frank about it, right way through to, you could argue, late 1943, it looked as if Nazi Germany was going to win. And at every stage, any one of them expressed their doubts or their worries. She would say to them, what are you talking about? America will join this war. And when America joins this war, you do not know what my people are capable of. You don't know what Americans can do. We will win. And she never once wavered. Maybe she did privately in her quiet moments, but certainly not when anybody else was around and certainly not when she knew that bolstering the morale of those of her fellow agents was absolutely crucial. You know, I, I, in my job as a journalist, I've been covering very intensively the war in Ukraine and, and talking to a good number of Ukrainian officers as well. And I couldn't help but finding comparisons between their kind of relentless spirit of optimism and perseverance. I mean, I know Ukrainians who've been telling me since the beginning, we're going to win. And my thinking like, okay, well, I'm not going to contradict you, but like, I, I don't know that you are. But there was something about this. I mean, it's kind of the, it's, I don't want to call it just sort of like a blind optimism. It's just, it's on some level, it's a deeply rooted faith that like, no, we are stronger than they are. We can do this. We can summon something. And I think that for someone like her to be a performer, to have succeeded against all of the odds as a black woman, uh, as a foreigner, when she comes to France, I mean, she must. Have, it seems like she just had boundless resolve, uh, and and it never really dried up during the war. It was yeah. just kind of always there. You're absolutely right. You know, I, part of me wanted to call the book, you know, an unbreakable, because she was unbreakable, and that's another thing people have said to me. You know, when they're reading the book, why doesn't she step away at some stage? You know, because. These repeated back-to-back espionage missions she then does very often solo, increasingly on her own, increasingly exposed. You know, imagine the psychological toll and the toll that takes on you physically of these repeated back-to-back missions. And she gets she she she's so so she gets so sick and she is so often on death's door. People have said, why didn't she just step away? I've done three years. I've done enough. I've done four years. I've done enough. I've done two years. I've done enough. I'm going back to America to recover. She never does. She is there when the troops march into Berlin. She's been with them on the front line, getting shelled and attacked by warplanes on the front line, performing with the troops all the way into liberating Europe and into Nazi Germany itself. And then she remains behind afterwards to perform in the concentration camps for the victims of the Holocaust. It's absolutely remarkable that, that, that unbreakable spirit. And yes, I'm really glad you brought up the really glad you brought up the parallel with Ukraine because I've talked about it a lot already, you know, about this book. And you see those scenes, you know, I've reported from war. You have you see those scenes. They are so reminiscent of the Second World War, those cities shelled to ruins. You know, this is brutal, bloody, despicable stuff. And you see a free and democratic country being steamrolled or or the attempt to steamroll it by a much more um, military capable uh, aggressor for no other reason than they don't want it to be there. And and it's a reminder if, if, if we ever needed it, which we do, I think that freedom, the freedoms we cherish or we should cherish needs, needs to be fought for. It needs to be fought for every day. So what Josephine was fighting back then, we need to remember these are still freedoms that we should cherish and fight for today. And, you know, yeah, it, it absolutely. I was writing this book, you know, to, at the end, r- a, as the Ukraine war kind of broke out and was on our horizon. And and yeah, that it, it, there, but the Ukraini- Ukrainians' belief that they are right and they will prevail resonates very strongly. And it strikes me there's another parallel too of, you know, Josephine Baker and President Zelensky. I mean, performers understand something about, they understand how to play to an audience. They understand how to communicate succinctly, but also very deeply. You know, you know, I, I you know, I don't know that, jo- I mean, Josephine Baker was serving in a clandestine role, obviously, so this was a bit different. But, you know, it strikes me that even with President Zelensky, people doubted him in the beginning because they think, well, he's just a comic. I mean, he's That's a performer, right. right? But it's that ability, that talent, and we should know this from people like Ronald Reagan and others who have had a background in performing that allows them to break through and become uh, rousing to become symbolic to know yeah. how to behave iconically if that's what they need to do and the and you can't separate that from the, the from the performer they they, they it's a, the performer is kind of come is very much in the forefront in that kind of role 
Yeah, absolutely. So when when so Josephine ends up in in North Africa in Casablanca, and she does this incredible role there with Jack Abte gathering intelligence, largely for America now. Well, America and Britain for the in preparation for the torch landings, where you know biggest amphibious landing in the war yet before D-Day in American and British forces into North Africa to liberate Southern Europe, and you know she gets very very sick. And when when the you know when uh, uh, Morocco is liberated or, or or you know American troops on the streets, British troops on the streets, she's still very sick. And the American and British generals approach her and ask her to do a performance for the troops. And she thinks, I don't even know if I'm capable. She's still very weak and very ill. But she but she you know girds her loins and 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 decides to do so. That first show is it's epic doesn't sing for long she's too weak but it's epic and the american generals in particular think my gosh if we can have her you know performing for the troops all the way across north africa all the way into europe we're going to win so they approach her with a contract and it's an exclusive contract to perform for american troops until the end of the war and she says no and she says no because one i will not perform just for americans i will perform for any troop fighting in the Allied cause, whatever their nationality, French, British, German, Austrian, Polish, whoever. That's what I have to do. And she says, too, I will never get paid. Mm. So she's never, ever paid at any stage throughout the war for all the work she does. And she uses her own money to such an extent to fund her activities that by the end of the war, she's pretty much bankrupt. In fact, she's not just funding her own activities. She's also taking this money, buying coal and food and whatever the war destitute need and just taking it into like places where there are people who have nothing and uh, giving it away to them. And also getting, of course, getting Jews out of Europe and then getting them visas and paying the bribes to get them to South America and safety. So, um, yeah. So, and in those, that, that role that she then increasingly performs kind of late 43 through to the end of the war, it's a dual role. So she's performing now, but she's also gathering intelligence. And she does it brilliantly. But during that period, she becomes increasingly this iconic figure that is, as I say, right on the front line. You know, the time she's on the stage and, you know, they're, they're, the, the, the German warplanes swoop down and she's there with the troops in the dirt, you know, <laughs> taking cover, trying to eat a sandwich. You know, there's a Texan soldier crawls across with a bowl of ice cream and says, Miss Baker, you've got to have your dessert, you know, under fire. It's crazy stuff. Um and at one stage, you know, somebody says to her, you know, um, it's it's in Europe and it's 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 the winter of 44, 45 and it's there's snow on the ground. It's freezing cold. She's performing outside, you know, in this freezing cold in her, you know, very, very, you know, um, uh, scant, um, you know, ball gowns and and, and and dresses. And someone says to her, you know, you you shouldn't be here. And she says, listen, I'm a soldier, too. Mm. Yeah, and it seems she really embraced that role and being one of them. Um, talk a bit about the, the role she played for British intelligence. I mean, she's obviously deeply involved in the French resistance, but what was her value and her function as an agent for the British? So, long, you know, months before the outbreak of the war, um, the secret intelligence service spy master in Paris, who's this amazing, incredible figure, uh, almost unknown, uh, called Commander Wilfred Biffy Dunderdale. Biffy was his nickname. Biffy Boxing. He was a very good boxer at uh, school. Um, he had he he had he was the liaison between the Secret Intelligence Service in London and the French Intelligence Service, working hand hand in hand. And before the war, uh, and they know France will fall, and they know once France falls, there will be no means to get intelligence from France to London. So they need a way to reopen that bridge. And before the war, it's mooted that perhaps Josephine can be the courier, the person to take whatever intelligence is gathered through. And then, of course, the fall of France is so precipitate. You know, no one saw it happening in four weeks. Everyone is blindsided. You know, there are trucks crammed full of the files of the Dizian Bureau with all the names of their agents and sources, you know, and they're on roads crammed with refugees and the Germans are capturing material. and It's absolute chaos. And Josephine is at her chateau, you know, in the Dordogne, wondering what on earth she can do. And Jacques Abte turns up and he says, Josephine, we have a mission for you. It's come from Colonel Pellol, the head of the German desk um, in the Deuxième Bureau, who's now obviously, you know, gathering intelligence like many French 
uh, intelligence operatives underground. So, you know, under the eyes of the Nazis, but secretly. He says, we need to take all of the intelligence that's been gathered between the fall of France in June 1940 and now, and now it's kind of September 1940, to Britain. We need a way to get it there. And the way we think we can get it there is you, Josephine Baker, organise a, a, a series of shows in Lisbon, the capital of neutral Portugal, and then in your tour trunks, because you have to travel with dozens of tour trunks through your performing costumes and all your stage material and all your musical scores, and in there will hide all this material. And some of it I will transcribe on your musical sheets in a visible ink, but much of it will have to go as raw intelligence. So that's photographs, photographs of the German landing craft. That's signals intercepts of the Luftwaffe. That's all the list of the Nazi agents which have been sent to Britain. That's uh, all the details of the Luftwaffe air bases from where they're flying uh, the Battle of Britain and Blitz sorties. That's uh, details of Operation Sea Line, the invasion of Great Britain. That's the plans to invade Gibraltar. I mean, the list goes on. Um, and that's your mission. And she says, yep, fair enough. Um, and so she organises these tours to Lisbon. That Posters of Josephine Baker, the performer, are all over Lisbon. The, the, the shows are selling out. And they set off. They set off to re-establish, not just to carry all of this intelligence, but to re-establish the bridge between France and Great Britain in terms of intelligence. Give you an idea of how crucial that was. Just after uh, the fall of France, Churchill only just come he's only just come to power calls together his um intelligence chiefs and says look france has gone dark we have nothing we have not a single agent we have not a single source we have not a single wireless transmitter they're going that they're, they're poised to invade they're, they're already starting flying their sorties for the battle of britain get me back into france and the other side of the channel colonel paylol is saying to josephine it's all gone dark. We need contact with London. Get all of this material. Take it to London by whatever means you can and get get, get that link reestablished. And in Lisbon, at the British Embassy, there's a secret intelligence service cell. So if she can get the material to Lisbon and they can get it into the hands of the British Embassy to that cell, it, it, it from there it can be flown to London. And so that's the, the mission that she sets out to, to execute in October 1940 with Jacques Abde, just the two of them, and all her tour trunks, you know, by train and then by air, crossing, you know, any number of checkpoints, Gestapo checkpoints, customs checkpoints, borders on, you know, the mission of a lifetime, a mission that has war changing, um, you know, ramifications. And we can only imagine, I mean, the, I mean, well, maybe she didn't feel acute levels of anxiety. Maybe Jacques Abde did. I mean, the cargo that they're carrying, I mean, putting aside what would have happened to them personally if they were intercepted, you know, as you, you know, vividly portrayed this, this cargo, it was essential that it get to this point. I mean, this is a, this is not just a risky mission, it's a vital one. And it must have been extraordinary knowing that she's everywhere she goes people are watching her i mean it is yeah. the opposite of, yeah. of a secret courier yeah absolutely she's like that's, the most famous woman in the world yeah that, the, the most famous woman in the world carrying the most yeah. crucial intelligence in the world it's kind of crazy amazing. but you know what happens and 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 you know it's it's kind of you've got to read it to believe it but what happens is she turns up at these checkpoints and it, it, in a way it's like almost laughable but she turns up at these checkpoints and she just gets out of the train carriage dripping in furs and jewelry and the smile and the josephine effect and everyone you know everyone does a double take my, my god it's josephine baker so they just <laughs> they just stop at agents don't stop her and ask for her papers or search they run to fetch their wives and their girlfriends come and see Josephine Baker come and get your photograph taken it's that superstar effect and at no stage at every even when they have to board the, pla the, the, the plane in Madrid to fly onto Lisbon at no stage are they stopped and searched it, because at every single point she she delivers and you know if she'd faltered if she'd lost her nerve if fear had got the better of her, of course, it would have, the facade would have all fallen apart, but she doesn't. And that's just the start of, you know, any number of missions where she uses herself, you know, her status to to win through. And one of the just the just the sweetest ironies of this is, of course, she's completely fooling these Nazis whose regime have held her out as this villain, you know, this other uh, and in the most awful ways. And she's completely pulling one over on them because they're seduced by her celebrity too. Yeah. Uh, yeah did, she, absolutely. did she ever reflect on that? And in, in, in looking back, I mean, did she like savor how she just had 
one up them and gotten the better of them? Do you know what? At the end of the war, I'm pretty certain it's Jack Abte says to her, this is when the war's won. I think it's like, you know, autumn 1945. He says to her, would you have killed Germans if you had to? And she says, Germans, no. Nazis, yes. Mm, mm. So she, she's tough. This yeah. is a tough woman, right? Um, the, the, her greatest uh, rival prior to the war in Paris was Miss Tinguet, the f- French female uh, st- super, you know, star. Not a star to the level of Josephine, but a big star in France. And one day she's invited to a film premiere. Josephine is and Miss Tinguet's there. Miss Tinguet sees her across the room and says, words to the effect, come the, and I don't like to use the word because it's such an appalling word. Perhaps I won't use it. She says, you know, come down and, and, and bow down before me, you. And you can imagine the word she says. Yeah, sure. it's a word we all understand. Yeah. An epithet which. And Josephine walks across to her and rakes her face with her nails and says something equally um, dis- destroying in exchange. She was a street fighter. Yeah. And she'd learned that growing up in St. Louis. Yeah. And she was you know she, there, there was this steel insider which meant that when I'll give you another example you know this this is kind of like possibly even more powerful she's in Casablanca in North Africa and um so after the Lisbon mission they the, Josephine has to go goes back into France on her own because uh, Dunderdale in London they've got all the intelligence Dunderdale's delighted sends a telegram and they want to go to London to meet General de Gaulle, the leader of the Free French. And Dunderdale says, no, I need you back in France. You need to get this intelligence pipeline flowing properly. So Josephine says, fair enough. And she flies back in. And then, um, and then because it's, it, it's a safer route, they, they, they route the pipeline by early 1941 from France to Casablanca in North Africa and onwards to Lisbon. Okay. And so she's there. And suddenly the pipeline shuts down and suddenly all their contact with all their intelligence operatives, Dunderdale in London, Paylon in France, they just, they're just completely closed and they can't understand why. And so they're stuck with nothing to do. And eventually Josephine turns on Jacques Abte, her, her, you know, not, not just her intelligence partner, but they became lovers too. And she says, you know, and I paraphrase, but it's words to effect. And like it, like it, like like a, a cheater. You know, you coward. You're happy to sit here and do nothing whilst the Nazis are triumphant everywhere. You know, you coward. You you useless man. And she turns on him and she says, "I'm going off on my own. And I, I'm going to go to Spain and I'm going to go to Portugal and I'm going to find out what's happened and I'm going to get us back in business." And off she goes. And he says to her, "No, don't do that." You can't go on your own. You know what will happen to you in Spain and Portugal. You know, you, you know, the fact that we are in this situation means that we that something bad has gone wrong. You can't go, and she ignores him completely. And she goes and she pulls it off. So yeah, she she was tough, tough. And and, and you know, she never really stopped being uh, you know a justice warrior. I mean, she she's one of the only two women I think who speaks at the March on Washington, the famous civil rights march. She she becomes an activist. So she, you know, famously adopts I think twelve children and, and, and from all different nationalities and backgrounds. But you know, it seems like the, the end of her life. I mean, it, it's very punishing. I mean, she's broke essentially. I mean, she 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 doesn't go off into this kind of gilded retirement. Um, you know, talk a bit about her life after the war and the way that she kind of kept fighting. And, and you know, I don't know if you have thoughts on, you know. Why didn't she sort of go back to turning the celebrity into sort of the the money machine and you know and, and focusing on maybe building wealth, which presumably she might have been able to do and, and be more comfortable? Yeah, well, I mean, Josephine. Whenever Josephine was interviewed after the war, you know, and and right to to her dying day, in fact, she made she 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 died on the stage pretty much. I mean, she was performing, uh, and she went out as she wanted to go out dancing and singing. And even that last show, you know, the war was was a central part of it. But whenever she was asked, you know, what are you most proud of in life? She'd always say the war years because that's what made me who I am today. That's when she found herself. But after the war, she does go back to performing. She does make a lot of money. But she also invests a very large amount of money in her vision, in her new vision, you know, which is this vision of peace, peace and equality. And basically she's ahead of her time. 
she's ahead of her time. E- even during the war, I'll give you an example because it's it's so powerful. You know, I told you that story about when the Americans ask her to do that performance in Casablanca with the troops. She says, yes, but with one caveat, they will not be segregated. Mm. Because, you know, the American troops have turned up in North Africa and and, and every and everybody who's in, in, in Morocco is like, what's going on? There are black units and white units and apparently never the twain will meet. And, you know, Josephine's shocked, but, you know, Jacques Appé says, I thought we were fighting the Nazis to stop this kind of, you know, um, segregation. And, and Josephine says sagely, wisely, there was, there was a part of Joseph that was very, very, very wise, says, look, yes, this needs addressing. But first, we have to concentrate on fighting the Nazi threat. So let's get that done, and then we'll get this done. But she says to the you know, American commanders, I'll perform. I'll go wherever you want me to go. Frontline, doesn't matter. I'll, I'll perform. All across North Africa, she tours in battered old jeeps, you know, risking in life and limb time and time again but she says i will not perform the segregated audiences and often that gets people's backs up so she was ahead of her time way 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 ahead of her time so when she plows so much of her resources into her vision immediately after the war she is ahead of her time and, and it often doesn't land well and that's pretty much you know the root cause of her penury towards you know late 60s early 70s and of course she, she kind of turns it around I mean, her her last show, which was supposed to be her comeback show at the Babino, is in a sellout. You know, rave reviews and all the rest of it. And but that's when she she dies halfway through the performance. She passes away. So, you know, um, yeah, it's 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 a bittersweet ending. And the guy the guy the guy who um, was a dancer in that show, or in many shows, but was there as well. A guy called Jean Pierre Reggiori, who um, who's French but lives in the states, lives in New York now, and who's been really helpful with my research he said you know josephine in that show the things she would talk about most and with most pride were the war years mm. you know never went away and it must have been i mean on some level just i mean tremendous fun i mean terribly it's frightening but also just such a it's such a grand adventure as it was for so many people who were involved in the war effort um <clears throat> i do want to ask you too about i mean your own career i mean how did you make the transition from from journalist to book author and, and and what is it about the subjects that you've kind of returned to again and again that that keeps coming you keeps you coming back to them i was forced to stop uh, being a war reporter so i um had uh, spinal surgery um about 20 years ago um so i almost died uh extremely lucky to be alive extremely lucky to not be in a wheelchair hmm. uh, just being honest um so I could not really go back to um, being a war reporter. Um, and I also, I had to stop for a year. And during that period, I kind of woke up and realized how <laughs> how many times I had, yeah, pretty much uh, almost, um, yeah, not come back from war. So, yeah, I stopped. But, I, I you know, I, I, I kind of believe that if you're going to write about war, you have to have experienced it. Um, so I can sit down with... Anyone who's been in war, whether it be on, you know, a refugee through to a, a soldier or anyone in between, and I can, I'm not only can I just understand what they're talking about, but I can feel it because I've kind of seen it and been there myself. Um, I mean, I wasn't really when I was reporting from conflict. I was, I used to concentrate mostly on what conflict did to the innocent people, not mm-hmm. not bang bang as they call it. You know, yeah, of course I was on front lines, but but that was more what I was there for. So. I think I take that experience into what I write about. Um, and I, I, I like to think that all the stories I write have that unifying thread, which is that I think after decades and decades and decades of peace and freedom, we forget what it is. We forget why it's precious. And we only remember why it's precious when someone starts to take it away from us mm-hmm. or when it's about to be taken away from us or when someone threatens to take it away from us or when we see something like Ukraine happening, and then we remember. And when we see the people of Ukraine fighting and dying for the freedoms that we take so easily, that, you know, these, these, these are powerful reminders. So those lessons that we should have learned from the Second World War, you know, we, 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 I don't think we have. And I think we need to keep 
reminding ourselves and telling these stories is really vital. Yeah. And there's one other reason why I, I think Josephine's story is so important as well. You know, so many people of color, you know, Africans, Indians, you know, you name it, um, fought in the Second World War, millions of them. You know, in the British Army alone, well, the Commonwealth forces, there were millions. You know, the 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 the, the, the forgotten army that liberated Burma was a polyglot army. You know, in Indians, West Africans, you know, East Africans, and and we haven't told enough of those stories. Uh, and so it's good that we, I think, the time is right for us to start doing so. So for all those reasons, I think I take that war experience and I kind of filter it into what I write about now. Um, and I know from sitting down with lots of, um, whether it be World War II veterans through to more modern veterans and talking to them about their experiences, I know that I can kind of um, get on the level with them. So and I think that's crucial. And what are your thoughts? I mean, as we see what's what's happening in Ukraine now, and obviously there's been this just tremendous counteroffensive in recent days by the Ukrainians, and, and there's a lot of hope and a lot of optimism for what the future might hold and, and potentially even what amounts to a Ukrainian victory. But as someone who's covered war, I mean, give us your thoughts just briefly about what the inv- the Russian invasion has meant and how this has, you know, reshaped or even upended, you know, the security of architecture of Europe that has prevailed for, I mean, arguably since the end of the Second World War? Well, you know, no one would have wished for the Ukraine war and it's had terrible consequences for so many Ukrainians and we're feeling the economic and and social hardship, you know, across Europe and I'm sure you are in the States. So that's all terrible, obviously. And, and, you know, the Ukrainian fight is ongoing and, you know, um, I'm, I'm... humbled by the way they are resisting but i think it has woken europe up certainly in europe it's woken europe up it's made people realize we could have these freedoms taken away we have to be willing to fight for this stuff i'll repeat that we have to be willing to fight for this stuff so many people said at the end of the second war and after the second war so many people who were so who knew so much and experienced so much and were so what's the right word had so much authenticity you know um, you have to fight for freedom every day. It, the war, you know, the war's over, but the battle's not over. And I think the conflict in Ukraine has 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 brought us alive to that again. It's 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 tragic that it requires something like that to do so, but I think um, that's one of the kind of positives that comes out of it. it. It's it's tough to be positive when the war's still raging and you know terrible things are happening and. You know, we're feeling the seismic shocks of it all across Europe and, and across the world. But but I think that is a positive to come out of it, or I hope so. And as you now you've finished spending all this time thinking and writing about Josephine Baker, is there anyone today that reminds you of her? I mean, does she have a a comparable person as a performer, as an activist, as both, or or you know, have we not seen her her lights since? <sighs> I mean, Josephine's pretty unique. I, I, you know, I was doing an interview yesterday with an LA radio show, um, and the, the it's a it, it it it's a black LA radio show, and and, and the lady, um, you know, uh, interviewer presenter said, "Josephine is my hero." You know, Josephine is my hero. That's how she started the show. She said, "She's my hero," but I never knew anything about her World War Two years. I'm so glad you've written this book. You know, and you come across so many entertainers today who see her as their their icon and their inspiration and their muse. Um, she was, you know, she was the first, really. And it's not surprising that there have been so many people. And, and to this day, there are so many entertainers and performers who are who see her as their inspiration. So I think all those people who do so are carrying the torch and they're, they're carrying forward her work and and her legacy and that that's a wonderful thing and if nothing else if if this book can give them more ammunition to carry forward that legacy more reasons to do so josephine was just elevated to the pantheon in france she was pantheonized it's the highest honor in the french nation there is nothing greater than that it's only 80 something people in there there's only five or six women she's now one of them um you know if i think in Britain and in America, if we can recognize what she did in the war more, you know, maybe formally, I think that'd be a wonderful thing because I don't think we knew. Um, but yeah, it, 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 if telling her wartime story can just give those who 
follow in her footsteps, more reasons to do so, more ammunition, more inspiration. That's a many splendid thing. Yeah, and I agree, and especially in a country like the United States that is so, you know, obsessed with stories about the war. I mean, this is one that I mean I think would just uh, will absolutely resonate with people and uh, and be instructive. And is something that you're right; they don't know a lot about. In part because also Josephine Baker took a lot of those secrets to her grave, right? I mean, she didn't sure. brag about her service, and no. that was very um, never common among those kinds of people yeah. who served as well. Yeah. Uh, well, it is our tradition as the last question on Chatter that I reach into what I have before me here, the Chatter box, as we call it. Uh, and we select one question previously written uh, at random to ask you as our as our departing question. Uh, so I'm going to do that now. Um, well, this is a very light one, and this is very good for someone who is a world traveler like yourself. This is a nice light to, to end on. Uh, what is your favorite vacation spot? And you, you, you've earned a vacation, or you will at the end of your book tour. You know that's a bit of a um, <laughs> that's a bit of a um, not a trick question, but yeah, well there is one, but it's it's my favourite vacation spot simply because. So my father lives in France. In fact, I opened the book talking about that because my father sold our very modest home in Dorset in England, went to France and bought a ruined 14th century chateau, basically with cattle living in it, and spent the next twenty years renovating it. So he lives there. So every summer we pretty much go there and stay there. So. For me and my wife and children, that has been our, that's the constant in our life. We've moved house, we've sold out, we've moved on. We've even lived in different countries, but that is the one place. It's in the Limousin Centre that we keep going back to. So although we've vacationed all over the world, that is the place which we were there this summer. And I said to the kids, you know, look, (laughs) we keep going back here. Um, We could go anywhere. And they said, no, no, no. This is where we come to as a family. This is our, this is our anchor. So it's yeah. there. It's much oh, more than a vacation spot. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Well, Damien Lewis, congratulations on the book. Um, thank you for bringing this part of this extraordinary woman's story to life. It's, 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 it's a great adventure. It's an important story. And we're really grateful that you spent some time with us talking about it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.